the journey towards the realization of liberating wisdom in our hearts and in our minds has to include the purification of greed, hatred, and delusion in our hearts and in our minds. And practicing metta, or the training in loving kindness, has a great deal to do with that. And so that's why uh, the Buddha taught loving kindness. And all great spiritual beings have handed down that teaching in one way or another. On my first long retreat, I got a sense of this embodiment of loving kindness and saw when I had interacted with my first teacher, Anagarika Munindra, what I saw in him as the embodiment of loving kindness encouraged in me a sense of that's what I'd like my own actions to be in the world, my own way of expressing myself as a human being to be in the world. So I'd like to tell you about some of these ways that metta helps us to uh, lean towards in our lives to encourage the cultivation of qualities within us that help us to feel strong on our journey towards liberating wisdom. So on this first retreat that I went on, this is when I first met Manindraji. Many of you have heard about him. He was also the teacher of Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, also with Steve and many others on the path. On this first retreat, uh, this was my first long retreat. Right before that, I took a three-day weekend retreat, and I decided during that retreat that I would go for a month. I mean, I must have been crazy to think that I could jump from a weekend to a month. But I, I tried. I did it. I couldn't stay for the whole month, but um, I had children to take care of. But somehow I found a way to get there and have my children taken care of. And uh, on the first evening that I arrived there, I arrived late because so many things to uh, handle at home. And I must have looked like really so haggard and tired And there weren't any beds left. There wasn't any place in a bedroom where I could sleep. So they showed me upstairs to a hallway in this place where they were offering their retreat in California. And I had a a kind of a a very thin mat, very narrow mat to lay down on, like one of those camping mats. So I was laying it down next to a bathroom there where I would be sleeping in the hallway and then in the morning I'd have to roll it up, they said, and put it away and do practice and then go back there. So as I was unrolling the mat, uh, I hadn't met Manindra yet, but I had heard about him, that he was this wonderful teacher, first time in America, 
and that I, I just looked upon this being that I was going to be practicing with as somewhat of an otherworldly, almost godlike, you know, um, that he was going to be there in front of me in the hall like a shining light, and all of a sudden I would look in his eyes and I would be transformed. And that's... <laughs> so, this is when I was in my 20s and very naive. <clears throat> so laying down my mat, this man came towards me, and he was this Indian man, and I started to think, that's Manindraji. And very dark, shiny skin, white clothes. He wasn't wearing his little hat then, so bald and very shiny walking towards me and very concerned look as he came towards my rolling out the mat. And so I thought, oh, this is Manindraji. And I thought he was going to say something so transforming that I wouldn't have to do the retreat anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But he said, is that where you will sleep? He said in his uh, Indian lilt, you know, the way that beautiful way that they speak. And I said, yes, I said, this is where I will sleep. And he said, you look so tired, something like that. And I said, oh, I'm very tired, I'm very tired. And he said, you must get good rest. You cannot sleep there. You must have good rest. You can take my bed, and I will sleep somewhere else. And I was floored by that. I didn't expect that at all. He was like, he was like to me, Um, an elder brother, a father, an uncle, a grandfather, all of those things. And um, my first feeling, the first hit I got from him was not about, you know, transforming my mind, but it was more like opening my heart. And I really felt the deep caring that he had and the friendship that he had, um, the wanting to help, the wanting to make it easier for someone on the path. So I, I actually accepted the, the offer. I ended up finding another place later on, but I accepted the offer, and I found out that he slept in the bathroom. Um, it was kind of a big, biggish bathroom, you know, but <laughs> he did bring his mat into the bathroom, and he slept there. And it was so long ago, I can't remember how many nights or anything, but... That's how I met him. That's how I started out with a teacher. And he exemplified for me this gentleness and this friendliness. And those are the qualities of metta. In fact, gentleness and friendliness are the qualities when you take the root word of um, metta, when you take it in Sanskrit, it has the same basic meanings of gentleness and friendliness. There was a benevolence and goodwill, obvious. You know, I didn't think of it in, at the time, but as I look back, I could feel, remember, sense still that benevolence and goodwill. And he was like that till he died. He, he never thought of being... Uh, having a sense of being above us and if you if you try to when i would see him i would in the indian respectful way i would kneel down and touch his feet and this is how you do it 
and he would say, no, 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 and he would try to kneel down and touch my feet, you know. <laughs> and just that humility and that. So it really just kind of pierced my heart, as he would say. He would use those words for other things, but it would pierce my heart that I wanted to be like this. This, this is a good way to be, you know. I was so overwhelmed by my life that I, I didn't always think of those simple things of could I be this humble, this friendly, have this kind of natural goodwill towards people I don't even know. And so um, this way of metta was really shown to me before I ever, ever actually practiced metta. And then I met, uh, after practicing with Manindraji for some years, he said that it, it's time for you to do a longer retreat, so I want you to practice with Seda Upandita. So he showed me, um, pointed me to practice with this other uh, master of meditation who turned out to be, still is one of my teachers in the Dharma, also Steve's and many other of the Western Vipassana teachers. So this is a story about him that shows another side of metta, another side of that deep, deep caring that I really took in. So I went to visit him one year and when he was here teaching in southern Oregon somewhere. And I thought, he's nearby and I haven't seen him for a while. So I flew to Oregon from Maui and I made a, a an appointment to visit with him and to pay him some respects and offer some dana. And so <clears throat> he um, arranged for a time to see him, and I went at that time. There was a translator. And when he was coming down these stairs to uh, so that I could speak with him in the living room of that place, I was so overjoyed to see him. I have a tremendous amount of gratitude for all of my teachers and for this teacher too, that I was um, having tears of happiness and also uh, just a lot of you know, natural feeling of humility in his presence. And I put my hands together and as he was coming down, I said, I'm so happy to see you. Seadaoji, I'm so happy to see you. And he said something in Burmese or and or Pali, and the translator said, "Would you like me to translate that to you now?" And I said, "Oh, late sometime, trans, you know, tra translated." So we had a, a conversation, which is not as personal as my conversations with Manindraji, but this is how the relationship with Seda Upandita was and still in some ways continues to be. It's very impersonal. He, he doesn't make anyone so special. He doesn't try to create any solidified sense of even a spiritual self in anyone. Everything is just impersonal. So at the end, I made my bows and then the translator said, would you like me to translate what he said? And I thought, well, this must be important. So I said, okay. And he said, Seadaoji said to you, after you said, I'm so happy to see you, he said, I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you mindful. 
And at first, I was, you know, crestfallen. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'm a terrible yogi. You know, the first things that cow paths of my own mind. And I didn't um, know how to think of that in the beginning. But as I continued my relationship with him, and even shortly and during that time, shortly after that time, I thought, what fierce compassion he has, you know, to just give it to me as it is, without holding back anything, without um, trying to make my visit or me or who I was, the qualities that I'm exemplifying, anything special but to help me to understand what's most important is to be mindful of what's going on in the mind and in the heart because it's that mindfulness which will directly lead to liberating wisdom. It's that mindfulness which opens up the wisdom factor of the mind and heart. And so that part of him too uh, exemplified metta, loving-kindness in a fierce way. It's like mothers or parents or if your uncles, aunts, grandmothers, it's like tough love in a way. But it's true love. It has that unwavering, total dedication to, it's not about how much I like you or how much you like me. It's about freedom. That's what this is all about. It's about strength. It's about the clarity of the direction of our path. And so I could say, too, that this is what metta is all about. It's not just about benevolence and goodwill, gentleness and uh, friendliness. It's also about that fierceness of the direction of our path. Are we willing to develop all the wholesomeness of our minds and our hearts as a platform for liberating wisdom? Are we willing to have this unwavering continuity of our practice, no matter what happens, whether we get bored, whether we think it's not working for us, whether whatever, are we willing to be unwavering in our practice to have the strength and total dedication to freedom? So as many of us can attest to, we sit here in a place of this beautiful silence and many things come to uh, our awareness. All sorts of unlikable qualities of the mind and the heart come up. And a lot of what we experience in the West is really not liking ourselves so much, not trusting ourselves, not feeling confident, not being able to rely on ourselves, because we don't have such a good um, sense of ourselves. We really don't have a true sense of ourselves. That's what I've seen in my own practice and in my exposure to other people's practice. Um, We see unlikable qualities of the heart and of the mind And to make things worse, we add yet another layer to them of resistance in one way or another. We close down to those qualities that we see come up in our minds and our hearts, or out there in the minds and hearts or situations of the world. 
we close down in aversion, we blame, find fault, and instead of looking here to see where we can purify or rectify anything. We go away in fantasy. This is another way that we shut down. We would rather just let the mind wander in the samsaric realm of fantasizing over and over again, because it's easier than opening to what's difficult in ourselves. We add a layer of struggle. We fight with it, the kind of resistance that um, we struggle with many different ways. We think that maybe, you know, there, we could be, uh, we could understand it better, or the teacher could present it in a way that's more understanding. Um, we find all kinds of ways to struggle with it. The weather, the food, not getting enough sleep. Um, there's so many ways that we go off into the struggling mind with it not realizing that we're adding another layer of difficulty to get through. Or sometimes we don't do the practice. We just give up. We give up too easily. Sometimes backing off is good, of course. I want to say that. But when we give up too easily, it's another way of resisting. There is so much that is hard to face as we open to the Dhamma, the Dharma, inside of our hearts. And I just wanted to acknowledge that, that we do all of these things because it's what we know how to do. But then we learn other ways, too. We learn the way of loving-kindness, where maybe we can be softer, friendlier, more gentle with what comes up in the mind and in the heart. Our energy doesn't have to be attuned to the struggle or to the darkness as much if we can learn to have confidence in our ability to incline towards the good. I love that part of the metta practice where we uh, reflect on the goodness just right there a lot of times we see in our own hearts just during the time we're reflecting on the good that a natural metta already arises in us where we can experience ourselves um, we can experience the goodness of ourselves and mind you i think that even with all the metta practice that we do here the the one uh, sitting of metta practice. Sometimes I find in myself and in hearing um, fellow yogis like you that it's not even quite enough balance to balance out the propensity for the mind to go to difficulty and darkness and to revolve around that. Sometimes I think it would be so good to have a retreat that's half metta and half vipassana. And sometimes we do that because it's totally out of balance how we revolve around the struggle, how we revolve around darkness, around difficulty. So recognizing the good, 
noticing the goodness in ourselves and thereby being able to notice the goodness in others more. What we see when we do this more and more often is that we may become, uh, you know, when we get to the difficult person, we may become and see the uh, tendency towards aversion about that person in relationship to that person. But we're more and more able to see, because we've practiced recognizing the goodness, we're more and more able to see the goodness in that person. And one of the benefits of that practice of metta and starting out with easy individuals and going to the more difficult ones is when we get to the difficult one or ones, we see that in the past what we thought about this person, at least in my own experience, what I thought about this person might be that this is all you are. All you are is bad, you know. And uh, uh, it's not about my aversion. It's about your badness. This is what I've seen in myself. But it transforms. First of all, I come to see it as this is about the aversion here. This is where there needs to be put some loving attention, some kind attention. And also, in practicing seeing the goodness, I can see that there's a shining light in this being of goodness. And I see that more and more and more. And his or her, um, in my opinion, unwholesome qualities isn't what stands out as much anymore. And so this is when that opening to friendliness starts to come. So I love practicing that part of remembering the goodness about ourselves and about another. And I want to highlight that part right now because I I don't um, want to give so many words to it when we're doing, when we're actually doing the practice. But I give ourselves time to do it so that we can really bring our energy there. We can really contemplate, reflect on that. And even for myself, I get to that place even when I'm when I'm offering the teaching, I'm also doing the practice. And when I get to that place and trying to remember the good about someone, my mind also slips here and there. And I have to bring it back and say, oh yes, I'm remembering the goodness about this person. And I do that with delight. I come back with delight. I'd rather do that, really, than what the mind slips off to. If I'm making wise choices, I would rather choose to remember the good about someone than to just go off into fantasy land. So if we can really let that soak in, we'll make that choice more and more readily. Not just in the metta practice where we might do it with greater um, seriousness in a way, Uh, but we'll do it in our daily life more. So we're not so used to recognizing the goodness in ourselves and in others. And this is something we, we uh, open to when we're doing the metta practice, when we haven't done it for a while, or this is our first time, or one of our first times to do it. We'll have a struggle with opening to the goodness of ourselves. Well, sometimes 
even me, I sit here and I think, well, what did I do good this day? And nothing comes to mind sometimes, even though I'm doing a lot of good. <laughs> you know, when I look back, Steve always says, thank you for sharing the Dharma today. He says that to me. And even though I hear it, you know, I don't remember it. And um, a lot of times I remember, I'm doing the best I can. And that's good. You know, I'm just doing the best I can. So see what you can make a habit of your mind to remember the goodness of yourself so that it becomes that habit to see it in others. It can be simple, just that you smiled or someone smiled and it, it changed the air, the atmosphere. It's good to see the dark places, you know, too. I don't want to make, I don't want to minimize that. Um, the spiritual life is not about envisioning the light, as Carl Jung said. It's about making the darkness known, making the darkness known. But it's making the darkness known, bringing a sense of gentleness and kindness and friendliness to those areas, not with the added struggle, not with the added pushing away as we do. So when we do the metta practice, this helps immensely so that when the darkness is known, when we open to that, whether it's in vipassana, in our sitting practice, in our daily life, or even within our metta practice, it happens, of course, that the near and the far enemies of attachment and aversion come into view sometimes more readily. So making the darkness known with gentleness, with, the, with that metta that's more compassion, with friendliness, with that feeling that it's better known than not known, with that kind of wisdom that we can bring to it. So metta is this practice that helps us to recognize, recognize, to recognize, to re-know our goodness and the goodness of others. It helps us to remember it, to make it whole again, to make ourselves whole again, making it a member of this family of our hearts again, the goodness of ourselves. It is what many of the Tibetan, Tibetan and Buddhist paths talk about as the natural luminosity of the mind and the heart. Sometimes it can be quite covered, this natural goodness of ourselves. But we recognize it, we remember it when we over and over again incline the mind to that uh, metta. It's not like we have to make it up or get it from someplace else and put it there. It's more like it's here already. It's just, in a way, it's uncovering it. In a, in a way, it's uh, re-knowing it again and again so that it becomes the habit pattern of the mind. The Buddha said, what a person reflects upon and considers for a long time to that his or her mind will incline what a person reflects upon 
and considers for a long time, to that his or her mind will incline. Well, one of the things that is um, something that we notice in our practice is where the cow paths of our mind are, what, what we know in the cow paths of our mind. And sometimes it's not good news. Um, what is that saying? Self-knowledge uh, is not always good news. <laughs> so we know these places that where the mind inclines over and over again. And I don't know about you, but when I see that, when the mind isn't so strong and it goes there to the cow paths or to the places where the old habitual tendencies of the mind come up again, the empty echoes, I call them, they don't mean anything at all. They're just echoes bouncing against the walls, so to say, of the mind. Um, they're not true. They're just echoing out of habit. When I see that, it gives me much more impetus, much more reason, much more motivation to say, I'd rather incline the mind towards loving-kindness. I think the other day I said to you, loving-kindness is a practice that I see myself doing more and more because of that wise choice at night when I go to bed I see the mind reflecting on what was done in the day what needed to be done sometimes those cringing moments come up of what I did that wasn't so good and I realize that it's just going over and over terrain that is not onward leading and so I decide to do some metta and I repeat, even if the phrases seem empty, I'd rather repeat those phrases. I'd rather remember someone where I can remember their goodness than let the mind do its thing and habituate, rehabituate in its old patterns. Manindra used to say, when we do this practice, the practice of vipassana, also the practice of metta and all the Brahma-vihara practices, were uh, dehabituating the mind by rehabituating to wholesome states like when we do the practices of the Brahma Viharas at the same time we're dehabituating the uh, habits of the mind that aren't wholesome because we're not giving them energy at all we're in a way we're disempowering them they're powerful because of their habit pattern, not because they're true or because we need them, but they're only powerful because of their habit pattern. Metta has these qualities that incline the heart towards wisdom. And that's why uh, earlier today in the Metta session, I talked to you, I said it, uh, to you about how the Buddha said that we're developing three things in when we do the practice. He had different ways of describing what we're doing in the practice. And one of the ways was that what we're doing is uh, knowing, what, knowing what is unwholesome and what leads to suffering and inclining away from that. 
and what we incline to is the goodness. So it's developing the goodness, inclining away from what is not good. And on that platform, wisdom is developed. So the third thing is the development of wisdom. This is from Nyanaponika Thera, a German monk who practiced and did many wonderful translations of the Buddhist teachings, lived in Sri Lanka for a long time and passed away a few years ago. The ultimate aim of metta is to produce a state of mind that can serve as a firm basis for wisdom to arise. So in this purity of metta, when the mind has this metta-like shining quality, it's said that um, sometimes we feel, there are moments when we feel that the hindrances of metta, and all the hindrances really are kept at bay, greed and hatred, the major hindrances of metta, and uh, doubt, also restlessness and sleepiness, they're kept at bay. So we really feel the purity of metta in our hearts, that part of ourselves, that natural part of ourselves that can offer without any attachment of anything in return, that can offer our friendship, that can offer our time, that can offer any part of our material resources, that part of us that can see the goodness, that can come very easily. But there are times in the metta practice where we, uh, we also see more clearly attachment and aversion. And this is what actually happens in metta. And so sometimes people say, I don't feel metta. I just see attachment and or aversion very, very clearly. And we feel at that time that we're failing, that we're not doing well in our practice. But this is what happens when we do the metta practice. It, the, it's like the pond of our hearts is so clear, are so clear that we can look deeply into the pond and see what's there. And any, any little part of aversion or attachment is seen so much more clearly in the luminosity, in a way, in the luminosity of metta. So it's true that we see these parts uh, and we must be ready to be open to them. Because when we're not open, it's just like our hearts remain tight all the time in a bud. It's not like an open flower. And the sweetness of our being, the fruit of our uh, who we are as a human being can never be realized, can never be tasted because we're not willing to open to what we see, even in the metta practice. This is something beautiful from Anais Nin. And the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it takes to blossom. 
we must take that risk to open, even with metta, and see the painful parts of ourselves. Uh, It's difficult, but we won't be disappointed in the end. We risk exposing our vulnerabilities. We risk humbling ourselves. I can't remember who said this, but the spiritual path is one humiliation after another. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Um, And about this part, about this exposing our vulnerabilities and uh, this feeling of humiliation, of seeing something, you know, in a way it's good, it humbles us. Um, When I was practicing, the year before last, I was practicing at the Forest Refuge uh, with Utejaniya. He happened to be there and we could talk with him. And um, somehow in the teaching, he imparted to all of us that how wonderful it is to see those parts of ourselves that get exposed. And he pointed out to, uh, you know, how when a teacher speaks, you feel like he's just speaking or she's just speaking to you. He pointed out to me that that it's possible to see the delight in the mind when you open to something that's caused you a lot of suffering or humiliation or that's difficult to see. And it, it was so... It was so just, it was like somebody saying to me when I was looking at a painting, now I want you to see all the yellow in that painting. And then the mind just goes right there, you know, where you didn't see it before. So when he pointed that out, and I was doing the practice, to see the delight in the mind that can know the suffering and not close down with it, that can know aversion or that can know hatred, that can know attachment or clinging, and, and to have the delight to be able to see it. Not a kind of joy because, oh, you know, I see that I'm a bad person, it's really true. <laughs> but just the luminosity, the light that comes around it, the mindfulness, the awareness to notice the awareness of that experience. That's really what he was pointing to. So it's humbling, it's, it's, there's suffering in a way, to, but it's a suffering that's going, it's not the suffering that's coming. It's a suffering that is being let go of. The routine or root in our minds are these uh, deeply formed ruts that uh, somehow, sometimes with metta, I feel that we fill them with metta, we fill them with metta. These ruts are sometimes, I see, a closely knit system of emotional, bodily, and intellectual habits that are, I'm so used to. It's such a routine of having them, but uh, that I no longer question their existence or their validity for being. I just let them be without being so aware of them. I just let them play out and act on them, speak uh, on them, believe them. With mindfulness, with metta, we begin to see that they're useless. 
they're no longer serving us, these habit patterns of the mind. We can get so close to them with metta. We can get so clear with them with vipassana that we see they no longer serve. They don't have any validity. There's no sense in heeding what they're saying or what they're making us believe. So as we continue to practice and through metta, our hearts become more still, we become more profoundly and more friendly, in a friendly, gentle way, knowing of this, and a wise yearning for deeper peace and happiness arises. This comes with having that um, deep sense of okayness, that this can come up, it can be seen in the clarity of awareness, and seen deeply for its impermanent, selfless quality. It keeps us on the path doing our practice with metta. During every part of our path, uh, from the beginning to the middle to the end of our path, we need to strengthen loving-kindness until it becomes strong in and of itself. And sometimes it can come without our needing to bid it forth. Sometimes it comes naturally, but sometimes because of outer conditions, we need to work on it uh, with greater uh, strength in ourselves. So that slowly and steadfastly, new pathways of the heart and mind are carved out, each time bringing us closer to that liberating understanding, that liberating wisdom that truly frees the mind and the heart. We, we, we become more familiar with the terrain, and it no longer scares us what's there. Opening our hearts is not an easy task when we do metta. And sometimes we give up too easily because we may have been carrying this long uh, untruth within ourselves. Sometimes especially the masculine part of ourselves, whether we're a man or a woman, what, wherever we're coming from, that part of ourselves says, mm, softness, gentleness, this, you know, I'm going to learn more from different ways, from clarity, and maybe that's so. We may learn more from those ways, but softness, gentleness, that kind of friendliness, uh, openness, we learn a lot from those ways too. And we don't have to worry so much about opening to love. Um, We can just, because love brings with it difficulties, as we know. I love this quote by Alice Walker. I have learned not to worry about love, but to honor its coming with all my heart. The coming of whatever is with it, the exposing of greed and hatred. I want to um, talk about love in our culture. 
has a connotation of giving something and then getting something in return. Sometimes, not, not with those of us who have looked more deeply into it, and I would suppose that's all of us here in this room. Uh, like when we love someone, can we love them without expecting them to love us in return? When we offer a wish for, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, can we offer that without even needing them, that person that we're offering it to, without even needing them to acknowledge that we've made that offer, we've given that blessing to them? This kind of quality of uh, loving kindness of metta is this unconditional quality. Uh, so we say unconditional love when one, one of the ways that we express metta because it's giving from our hearts without expecting anything in return. So I want to talk about the phrases here because it's important to do it with that attitude. Um, these phrases are not affirmations. These affirmations are a different thing, good in their own right, helpful in their own way, powerful in their own way. This offering of loving kindness, are, you might just call them blessings. Uh, we can offer a blessing without needing to be acknowledged, without needing it to come true. We don't know, you know, when it will bear fruit. Maybe it won't bear fruit. I would ask our teachers, the various teachers, um, what happens when we offer our goodwill, not the opposite, ill will, when we offer our goodwill to different beings and the progression of the individuals. Does it come true? Does it, and uh, all of my teachers or the teachers that I've heard from indirectly have said, we don't know. We really don't know. It's just good to give. It depends on many conditions. It depends on the receptivity, what's going on in that person's life, if there's a lot of worry and a lot of preoccupation with something else. It won't pierce that person's heart. Or maybe there is a lot of preoccupation and it, it does pierce their heart because it's so needed. Um, it depends on the sincerity, the purity from which we're coming from. Are we coming from the purity of really giving without expecting anything in return? This is a great power that um, makes it effective in that way. But really, we're doing the metta to cultivate loving-kindness in ourselves. And then it doesn't matter if there's words. We can think about another person, and it reaches them somehow. It supports them somehow. We can be amongst other people, and somehow it's felt. Just as when a person comes in the room and is upset and angry, we can feel it. When a person comes in the room and has a great deal of quietness and loving-kindness, we can feel that too if we're quiet. So this is powerful, uh, this unconditionality of loving-kindness. 
I was struck when I came across this in, this is actually in the uh, general provisions of the state of Hawaii. Um, and it's section 5-7.5. <laughs> it's called the, it's, this is part of the Aloha spirit. I read this many years ago and I heard it on the radio again um, just before I came. I just, I want to read it all to you because this has so many qualities of loving kindness that um, it says it all right here. The Aloha spirit is a coordination of the mind and the heart within each person. This is part of our state general provisions. <laughs> I wish it were truly that way there. It's not such really as an ideal place as people may think it is. But there's a lot of aloha spirit. This aloha spirit brings each person to the self. Each person must think and emote good feelings to others. In the contemplation of presence of the life force, aloha, the following and what they call inuhi laula loa may be used. I guess that means expressions. And so they're spelling out aloha here. A for akahai, meaning kindness to be expressed with tenderness. Lokahi, meaning unity, to be expressed with harmony. Oluolu, meaning agreeable, to be expressed with pleasantness. Haahaa, meaning humility, to be expressed with modesty. Anonui, meaning patience, to be expressed with perseverance. These are traits of character that express the charm, warmth, and sincerity of Hawaii's people. It was a working philosophy of the native Hawaiians. Aloha is more than a word of greeting or farewell or salutation. Aloha means mutual regard and affection and extends warmth and caring with no obligation in return. Aloha is the essence of relationships in which each person is important to every other person for collective existence. Aloha means to hear what is not said, to see what cannot be seen, and to know the unknowable. So it, it says more, but the, the rest is the admonishment to actually practice this. Hmm. So it has to do with giving this heart of aloha, this spirit of aloha, giving of ourselves, of our love. This is from Krishnamurti. You want to be loved because you do not love, but the moment you love, it is finished. You are no longer requiring somebody to love you. That's pretty deep. But when you, you really, going back to what one of our teachers said, we develop metta to give our love, to develop metta in our, whole, in our own hearts. And when we feel that love in our own hearts, there's a sense of fulfillment that 
We feel it there. It's not that we're requiring the love to come from outside of us because it's inside of us. And we know that with such clarity and such deep faith that we can rely upon that. And it's not about getting from someone else. It's all about giving. So the near enemy is attachment. This is a part of us that wants to be loved. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we're so attached to it that we're suffering from it, then we really need to take a look there. We feel that attachment when we're doing metta practice because we, we want maybe we want more out of the metta practice than is naturally occurring in our practice then. Maybe we want more out of, the, out of a person. Um, like for example, I might have one of my children in the metta practice, and often I do, you know, they get rotated so everybody gets equal time. <laughs> and so when one of them comes up, I might say, may you be happy, you know, and I feel that, I, re- I do really feel I want them to be happy for really their own, their own well-being in their life. But then sometimes this attachment, I want you to be happy so you don't bother me anymore. So I'm just, <laughs> you're not a burden. You know, sometimes I feel that, and even though they're great, they're all, knock on wood, they all turned out okay. Um, so we feel that attachment in our metta practice. So watch out for that, you know, when you have a little stickiness about your phrases or about wanting it to be so with someone, wanting them to change. You know, do we ever say, um, may you be happy? Because we want them to change. It's about what we want. It's not about their well-being. So we see those places in us. Again, metta is a sense of just giving our love to that person, no matter what. Just giving our love. George Shaw says, there are two great disappointments in life, not getting what we want and getting what we want. (laughs) Both ways it's hard. When we get something we want, we want more usually. So we don't have to be imprisoned by it, but we don't have to be also uh, identified with it. It's just when it comes up, especially here we're talking about metta practice, when it comes up in our metta practice, just know it's there. And just give it some acknowledgement and keep going with your metta practice. If it becomes overwhelming, you can always go to vipassana when you feel a lot of uh, attachment coming up in your practice. The far enemy of uh, loving kindness is uh, aversion. It comes in so many ways. It comes as resistance, judging, criticizing, hating, comparing, fearing, uh, many even more heavy ways than that. And again, we see it so easily in our metta practice. We can see fear and aversion, hatred much more easily than we can sense attachment. It's harder with attachment. Our teachers say, and we actually experience it because attachment can seem like metta. 
it, it brings us closer, but sometimes it brings us closer to suffering. But with the far enemy of aversion, we can see it from afar, we can feel it. Um, that's why it's called the far enemy. We can see it coming from afar. Manindra would say, when I would ask him, why is it that I, as I practice more and more, I see these uh, hindrances more clearly? And he said, oh, he says, your mind is like a cloth that's getting cleaner and cleaner. And when the cloth gets cleaner, you see the stains more easily. And so, you know, that just be prepared that that's what happens. But actually, they're seen with less identification. They're seen with more wisdom. The wisdom of seeing the impermanence and the, the selflessness of it all. So anyway, we see this aversion. And it's helpful again when we see this aversion to bring to it a sense of loving awareness. The other day I talked about when somebody asked, can we bring loving kindness right to the fear, right to the place of that aspect of uh, aversion? Yes, of course we can do that. Just surround it with loving kindness, that kind of acceptance. Sometimes vipassana helps, just shifting to vipassana for a moment and naming it. Oh, this is just fear. And then going back to our metta practice. Sometimes shifting in our metta practice to a person that is, there isn't such uh, aversion around so that we can continually continue to strengthen the metta before we go on and uh, to another person. So these are the two uh, near and far enemies to watch out for in our metta practice attachment and aversion. And as you experience them, we can talk about them more in the Q&A, sometimes more um, direct conversation about them to the specifics of your experience will help more than me just talking about them generally here. Just to know about them is helpful. So this is not just something that's going to be easy to do, of course. Anything that's worthwhile doing takes effort and energy, our loving energy. And with, with our practice, with our spiritual practice, it's important that we're willing to do this. We're willing to go through the pain of the heart, the pain of the body, finding the balance that we need to have to order, in order to get through. Again, um, written by a contemporary person, I love to bring these contemporary examples to light. This is by Isabel Allende, one of my favorite writers. She wrote this at the, about the age of 45, where she considered that middle age. Now there's a new middle age, I think. <laughs> um, she says at that time, by that time, a woman knows that love is work. It doesn't just bloom like a flower in the desert by a miracle. It's something you work on every day. So this is how metta is. It's something that we must work on every day. And then the enduring quality of love is exposed to us. The soft, pliable strength 
of loving kindness is exposed and is natural for us, that natural connecting and caring for one another, that patience, that benevolence, that spaciousness that allows all those beings in our hearts to come in. The ones that are difficult to be with have the same value of love that we can give to them as the, as the ones that are easy, the benefactor or the dear friend. We really come to see that. It's a truth in our hearts. And I'm not speaking from theory. I see that from experience when there can be offered love in that kind of spaciousness. And it's really developed in moments. You can feel the love for a difficult person is the same as the love for a dear one. There's no difference. So that equanimity is there, that generosity, letting go, interconnectedness. And then it becomes natural. So I'd like to end with these words from Rumi. The tender words we speak to one another are stored in the secret heart of heaven. And one day like rain, they will fall and our mystery will grow green over all the earth. So may this metta of our hearts fall naturally, like gentle rain. Well, let's sit for a few. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.